1: Today on our show we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and finally Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research.
0: Okay, so doing part three today on the Nuremberg Trials, uh, which is going to be a synthesis of our previous two in a sense. Uh, Our objective with doing this is just to think about human nature and how people behave under different circumstances and throw in Uh, a little bit of biblical lens on that to see how that uh, plays into our faith and and uh, the institutions that we shape as far as the economics. So Justin, take us away.
2: So uh, this is part three in our section on kind of power, right? And power and institutions would be. And so this On this section, we're going to talk about the Nuremberg Trials, but before we get into the Nuremberg Trials and what they were and maybe what this might show, let's do a quick recap on Part 1 and Part 2. If you remember Part 1, we were talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment, and in the Stanford Prison Experiment, which was conducted in the 70s, we had college-age men who were randomly assigned uh, into groups of guards or prisoners, and then... Uh, set up into a mock prison, and then we just observed what happened. And what happened was that the the guards very rapidly became dictatorial and sadistic uh, with their treatment of the prisoners. And one of the things that this is purported to show is something like power tends to corrupt, right? And uh, especially Lord Acton,
0: I might throw in there just for citing purposes,
2: right? yes lord acton power tends to corrupt
0: acton institute um, is a friend of the gordney institute so i just thought i mentioned that they got some great stuff on their podcast and twitters and all that stuff acton institute okay and so come on you're stronger than that i didn't break your train of thought that bad did i for god's sakes russ let me finish the sentence <laughs>
2: so part one is power tends to corrupt and we see this in. A, Evidenced in things like the Stanford Prison Experiment, where even if you randomly assign people into different categories, it seems like the power tends to result in things like, you know, sociopathic behavior. <laughs> and in the Milgram Experiment, one of the things that we were wondering is, you know, in the wake of World War II, how did some, uh, an entire nation like Nazi Germany end up such that, you know, vast majorities of the population ended up complicit or participating in, in actions that we know intuitively are wrong. And so uh, one of the things that uh, the Milgram experiment discovered is that, well, you can take the average American and put him in a situation where somebody who is in a white coat and presumably has some kind of authority is telling them, you need to do this. The experiment requires that you go on. And it turns out that up to 70% of normal American men will continue administering a shock up to the point where it's presumably killing the person. And so what that experiment is supposed to show us is something like, look, you may think that there was something really, really crazy about Germany uh, that enabled them to commit all these atrocious crimes. But actually, it turns out that most Americans put in a situation will continue up to a point and go past what they know is morally, uh, you know, will do things that they know is morally or are morally wrong um, if they are being told by somebody who is even in a perceived position of power above them that they ought to be doing it. And especially if that person is telling them that they have to do it. Something like the experiment requires it, or, you know, I'll
0: take responsibility for it. This is my experiment. You need to do what I tell you. Um, So it's kind of interesting. Our natural experiment with the white coat and the COVID on some people were non-compliant with that. I'm just thinking of the opposite that, we had the white coat say we're an authority and this is the right thing to do. And then people not following right in line with that in some cases. So we had maybe had a little white coat natural experiment going on with, with COVID here. But
2: I think this uh, definitely is a good, uh, okay. the current response to COVID is a great example. Okay. Uh, Richard Feynman famously said like, you should absolutely never trust a scientist. That's the point <laughs> of science is that right. you don't have to trust scientists. Right. Uh, <laughs> And I'll just leave that on the table. Okay. And so now to the Nuremberg Trials. And you might think this is a weird jump, but what the Nuremberg Trials were was after the end of World War II, the international community tried a bunch of people in the Nazi leadership. Um, and they tried them for war crimes. And they took place between November 20th, 1945 and uh, October 1st, 1946. And you had people like Rudolf Hess, uh, Hermann Goering, a lot of the surviving top brass of the Nazi war machine, uh, as well as people like Albert Speer, who was uh, uh, Hitler's favorite architect, Mm. and some of the industrialists whose industry got kind of subsumed into the Nazi war machine. And they were all tried for the participation in war crimes.
0: Yeah, the architecture thing. I I did have the uh, privilege of going to Auschwitz uh, a few years back and learned about Spears stuff. And I mean, there was a really a lot of design of awful things, like how can we best hurt people or torture people or confine them or whatever. And you really see that when you visit a place like Auschwitz.
2: Yes. And so what does
0: this have to do with those past two experiments?
2: Well, one of the things that's very interesting is the defense that was put forward by the Nazis at the Nuremberg trials. And this is, has become to be known as the Nuremberg defense. But previously to that, is, it was just called the Superior Orders Defense. And the defense is, look, I was just following orders, right? Yep. Um, and so for every single person you know, who was tried at Nuremberg, it's actually true that they were following orders. You know, who gave the final order? Well, of course, Hitler, right? But, of course, Hitler wasn't tried at Nuremberg. Hitler committed suicide in his bunker. So if everybody who was at Nuremberg uh, was tried
0: and their defense is, I was just following orders, then the only one truly guilty was Hitler. If, if you follow that to the logical end, I guess. If just following orders is a valid defense. Right, right. And so
2: there was actually only one, Albert Speer, you know, the architect, he was actually the only one who was tried at Nuremberg who even admitted any personal responsibility for the Holocaust whatsoever. Everybody else said, no, it's not my fault. I was just following orders. Hmm. So what happened to those people?
0: You got me on that. I not I'm I'm more interested in history in the last ten years than I've ever been in the last forty-nine years of life. So I don't know my history that well. My
3: understanding is the defense did not work. Yeah. Well Speer got twenty years in prison.
2: I was okay. gonna say
0: they wanted to, they wanted somebody had to go down for this, obviously. That had to be part of it.
2: Speer got twenty years in prison. A couple people got off altogether, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason Speer only got twenty years in prison is because he was able to kind of convince the judges that he didn't really know what was going on exactly, but he did say, I am at least responsible for the Nazi regime in, in, in some part. Everybody else said, no, I'm not responsible. And and um, I was just following orders and a bunch of them hung. Right. And not only were they hung uh, when, when you hang somebody having taught the death penalty, we talk about the ways you can hang people. Uh, there's a the long rope method and the short rope method, the, the long rope method. Uh, um, when you hang someone, it's, the purpose of it is to snap the Instant neck and death, kill you pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. And the short rope method doesn't necessarily do that. And they all got the short rope method. Yeah. So uh, a bunch of them actually suffered from for 14 to 17 minutes, which you might not think is compares to say uh, you know death in a concentration camp. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, they were killed. They and and they were held responsible for their acts, right? Even though. Uh, Their defense was, I was just following orders. Yeah. So one of the things that I think this really brings to light is this idea about rights being inalienable. And if rights are inalienable, then so are responsibilities because rights entail responsibilities. So there's this tradition in uh, natural, you know, you know, natural, the natural rights tradition, which just says that, you know, humans by are bestowed by nature or by God, or, you know, it's spelled out in any different number of ways in any different number of natural rights versions, but that says, look, humans have natural rights. And since rights entail uh, responsibilities, if you have a natural right, you have that responsibility. And if rights are inalienable, and they can 't be taken away from you, yeah. then your responsibility is inalienable too. And despite some you know, a superior saying, don't worry, i 'll take your responsibility. You, you don't have to worry about being responsible for this. The experiment requires you to go on. Yeah. The Fuhrer requires you to do this. Um, yeah. You sacrifice your, resp- or your attempt to get rid of your responsibility and, uh, you know, your rights, you might sacrifice, you know, you might do what they say, but really, um, you are going to find your responsibility nailed back to yourself ever harder. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think the Nuremberg trials brings to light. It's, it's not that you will always be held responsible, but that it is, it's very plausible that despite your best attempts to discharge your own responsibility and kind of alienate it from yourself and make yourself just a cog in a machine, you can still be held
0: responsible for that decision. So I can't help but think about free will with this. (laughs) If you're a determinist, then you'd certainly think they're not inalienable because you can't do anything in a free will way anyway. Is that right? Just to kind of weave in a little bit of our free will stuff from the past? Throwing determinism into here might
2: just muddy things up okay. uh, because I mean a determinist might say well look you're gonna do whether or not you try to alienate your rights or responsibilities you're going to do it anyway and whether or not you're held responsible for those that's going to happen anyway regardless <laughs> right. there is only one way for history to unfold okay. um, therefore that's going to happen um, but you are right to kind of tie it in in the sense that one of the things that we think is kind of inseparable from our concept of a person is the idea of free will and likewise one of the things that we kind of accept as inseparable from a person is this idea that as a person they have certain rights and responsibilities and so your attempt to discharge this responsibility by saying well somebody else told me to do it yeah that may get you to do that thing but it's not necessarily going to stop anybody else from holding you responsible for doing that thing
3: go ahead So I wonder, maybe a a less egregious example than the Nuremberg trials, but I wonder if this has any connection to kind of a more modern debate about our founders being slaveholders. And so my thought is that, you know, you can look at, you know, the great scope of history and see throughout history, there was this institution, slavery, uh, which took on different forms and was better or worse, depending on the period you looked at. But this institution was basically, society had a norm that you could do this, and people you know, ran their, what, whether, whether it's businesses or plantations or whatever they were doing using slaves, kind of in, in line with societal norms. But if we believe this natural rights way of looking at things, which I, I also sort of have a, a predisposition to be a natural rights sort of person, then those people should be held responsible. For example, the founders ha- having slaves, it doesn't matter that society told them it was okay to do this. It doesn't matter that the authorities at the time would have sanctioned it. What matters is that they did it. And those, the slaves had natural rights, which were violated. But then I feel like we, if we look back at history, most people become criminals, I, I think, and, and bad people. And so maybe the answer is yes, most people are bad people, or most people are criminals. They're violators of natural rights. But what do you think about this? Do you think that that connection is somewhat solid, or do you think it's not? And if so, do you agree with the conclusion of it that makes most people to be a bad person?
0: Before you answer i, I got to just say that you, I, you become a criminal because of some of the laws that are on the books. Like, I am a crappy criminal in Kansas because there's a law that says I can't pass out some of my crappie that I didn't know about, but I gave some crappie to friends to eat. And it turns out you have to report that to the Kansas uh, DNR if you pass out some of your crappie. So that made me a criminal. I committed a crime, but it was because of the law of the land, not because of some sort of natural right. Let's so an just rephrase sort of right. Peter
2: means you become immoral. <laughs>
0: Yes, right. that's right. Crim- kind of a go criminal
2: against
3: the or- originator of natural law. So okay, right.
2: Which but, would be more right. not yes. a violator of natural law.
3: Not a civic criminal. Yes. Right. 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 Okay, great.
2: So you are correct in saying that natural, if we assume that natural rights, that the naturalized tradition is correct, that gives us an answer for why slavery is wrong, right? Um, and in fact, it's very hard to say why slavery is wrong if you don't subscribe to this natural rights ethic. Uh, if you that. say something like, no, rights are just whatever the state decides, then you have to say, well, the change from slavery to, you know, to emancipation, that was just a change. It wasn't progress or anything like that. So you are definitely right that that provides us for a reason for thinking that slavery was wrong. You are also right in thinking that it makes us say of slaveholders... Uh, they were doing something wrong, mm. right? Um, but before uh, before we say that something like, well, a slaveholder a hundred years ago is just as morally bad as a slaveholder would be today, right? Which And that's the leap that I don't think is warranted, mm. right? Um, if we want to cast, uh, you know, blame on somebody, we might say, Surely what they did was wrong, but if we place it in its historical context, it still is wrong, but it's not as wrong as it would be today. if somebody did it today because the uh, kind of epistemic situation they were in wasn't such that they would be able to correct their mistake with the ease that we would we would be today.
3: So is the is the difference between following orders and following the norms of the day is that epistemic in nature? Is that the idea? Oh, what what well, is the epistemic?
2: You guys you guys talking over my head. Here. Epistemic just means like related to knowledge whether or not. You okay. Can- how you could find out
3: that kind of thing. Okay. So if we put like Jefferson on trial today for holding slaves or something like that, he would probably say something like, "Well, everybody was doing it," which is not to me a very different argument from "Well, every other officer was," you know, you know, for just following orders. Not that you know this is a difference in degree, right? Um, but still, what what you say to that?
2: Let's push that even further. I would say because um, would it have been difficult for Jefferson to get rid of his slaves? Probably, right? In fact, there's a, a book by Thomas Sowell where he explains that actually a lot of plantations are set up as kind of corporations and it was actually impossible for these people to discharge their slaves or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's leave that to the side and let's say, would it be difficult for Jefferson to dispose of his slaves? Not dispose of, emancipate. Um, <laughs> That's a better word. <laughs> better, better yeah. term, <laughs> yes, it would have. But let's say it would have cost him his, you know, economic, his salary for the year. He would have had to start over or whatever, Right that's a, a kind of a high cost to pay, right? Would it have been difficult for Albert Speer to not follow orders?
3: <laughs> yeah, probably, maybe probably yes. a little bit. Yeah. Would he
2: have had to pay a higher price? Than, yes, probably. Yeah, probably. A
0: lot of these people that we are talking about, you know, in the Nuremberg trials. And it probably go beyond his own life. It would be his family's life or he'd watch them die or something awful yeah. like that. So yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, which is to say that, look, it's not only that we hold these people accountable because they did something wrong, uh, and we think they could have easily done something else. We actually, if we look at it, we think it would have been very hard for them to do something else. But we still hold them accountable. And so, what I take it that means is that you, you know, this attempt to gi- to discharge responsibility and to discharge it in terms of oh, my superior made me do it, um, just is not likely to work now if on the other hand it's the culture telling you to do it people don't aren't normally don't try to normally discharge that responsibility to their culture because usually when you're being tried you're being tried in the same culture that you're in right um so it doesn't seem like that arises as much
0: although we got pretty diverse culture here so there can be multiple factions within you know the state of Kansas or the, certainly the United States, but all right, well, that looks like a good place to take a break. We went a little long, but the discussion was so hot. When we come back, I want to talk about kind of the punishment and responsibility versus the morality. Cause I'm hearing like, okay, it's worse if we're breaking a law and it's immoral versus it's just immoral and you're still within the law or something. So I feel like we can, clear up some of that. And then I also want to bring in the natural rights with God and kind of the, a little bit more of the history because I kind of feel like we threw that out there without kind of tying that back to where that may have come from and whether believers and non-believers can believe in a natural rights type of theory or not. So we'll be back in just a bit.
1: By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Boarding Institute at
0: Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Here at Ottawa, we have student programming where we have a discussion coming up with Brian Kaplan, Uh, from George Mason University on open borders and immigration. Uh, We've done uh, some reading groups uh, where we sit down for a day and talk about religious freedom in America. Uh, We've got another book club coming up on Bitcoin. So lots of fun activities to think about faith and economics here at Ottawa. And if you have someone uh, that you know that's looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Justin or Russ today.
1: Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at Institute.org. Okay, so let's continue on
0: then. I wanted to bring up this natural rights. Anybody wants to take a stab? Or Peter, you want to do a stab at what your impression is of natural rights and God or the Bible?
3: Well, the resident philosopher will probably give me a takedown for this, but I'll I'll do my best here. The way that I think of, so one confusion I want to clear up is that natural rights is not like nature tells us things are true, like in its essence, like by watching nature, we can find laws that like, if we watch tigers, we're going to determine what morality is. Natural means that there are laws that are made present to us or that that are presented to us by, you know, how essentially can, conclusions follow from actions and so something like natural rights would be if you are violent towards people it's just a a rule of the world that you're going to not have any friends and you're going to have a hard time getting along that's that's something that like natural law would tell you is the the more violent you are to someone uh the the less likely you are to prosper justin what do you think about that is that totally off base or is it getting in the right way i think it's a little bit off base
2: all right so natural rights and this comes people define natural rights differently. Uh, there is at least one school of natural rights, which actually does say uh, the way we determine what natural rights are is we look at the way humans interact with each other and, we, and the capabilities that humans have. And since humans are mostly rational and, the, and cooperation is possible, that entails, since humans have this nature, that uh, the rights they ought to have are Blank and freedom of speech or whatever. So they say, since it's an empirical observation that humans are this way, and it appears to be part of humans nature that they are this way. These are the rights that governments ought to grant them. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, and I think that was what I was trying to get at, maybe clumsily. Okay. That, that particular. Well, discussion.
0: let me I just pulled it up because I thought since we we're not too far off from Constitution Day, so we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness
2: yeah so what i just said is that there's one tradition which takes it right. to be let's we look at humans and observe what is in human nature and therefore humans human nature determines what political rights they ought to have there's another tradition which says uh these rights are imbued in us by our creator mm-hmm. right and in this sense, it's kind of a priori in the sense that it's not that we look at humans and say, well, since humans are this way, uh, we ought to treat them with this, uh, with this set of rights. Um, it's just something that says, uh, it's, it's a view, moreover, that says, since humans are created in this manner, Um, and the way we know that they are created in this manner is because of, you know, divine revelation or whatever, um, since they're created in this manner, that entails that they, uh, they have these
3: rights. Now, these aren't necessarily incompatible though, right? Correct. And and this is like the Aquinas, you know, God made us in a certain way. And because he made us that way, we can also just by looking at nature and, you know, the Bible says the heavens are telling the glory of God by looking at how humans interact, we can see what God's plan was, even if we don't have access to like the Bible in front of us.
2: The divine version of human revelation entails that the empirical version of human revelation will also work. I see. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if the divine uh, version of human rights is true and uh, humans are created in this way, then if we look at humans, surely we're going to find out that,
0: you know, Hey, they look that way too. I can't help but think that uh, sin also is part of what's imbued on us or whatever from the story of the Bible that you've got these unalienable rights But you also got sin that you got to deal with at the same time and the responsibilities that come with your inalienable rights. And that's where kind of the morality, I guess, comes in, in grappling with that sin as you live your life.
2: Yeah, responsibility wouldn't make any sense if something like wrong action or sin wasn't possible.
0: All right. So following orders. One other thing I wanted to bring up was we often hear from a biblical standpoint that when Christians go to war, the old doesn't the thou shalt not kill apply so how does that work into this following orders like i was just following orders thoughts on that one because to me there there's kind of a societal umbrella that's nestled in with cultural but it's in some ways i guess similar to the maybe the nazi germany ish type of thing so. so i think it's
2: uh very important and one of the ways you can bring this out is, you know, we all look at the trials of the Nazis and we go, yeah, and the Nazis were really bad. And so obviously that defense shouldn't work. And uh, thank goodness they all hung, right? Right. Uh, Because they did really, really bad things. Um, And then you can say, well, um, how did the Allies act during World War II? Did the Allies do anything that was uh, problematic? And you go, well, you know, the bombing of... Hiroshima (laughs) was not great. And uh, Nagasaki was probably even worse since we had already bombed Hiroshima. And actually, you know what, the firebombing of Tokyo was pretty brutal. And so was the firebombing of Dresden. And there's actually a great book called Human Smoke by Nicholson Baker, where he just kind of outlines the, you know, and he just goes through the headlines in World War II. Uh And one of the things this shows you when you actually read through the war as it was being lived, is that we kind of get this Mickey Mouse version of the war afterwards, um, and so uh, for as much scorn as we like to heap heap on these Nazis for just following orders, yeah, um, there were a lot of uh, you know what would be considered war crimes had the Allies not won the war that were committed by uh, by Americans, right? And so there were a lot of people who uh, you know, and presumably these people were. Uh, Presumably at least a number of them were Christians um, who did kill a lot of people and a lot of uh,
0: innocent people. right? Um, And possibly even the, you know, the scientists who helped create the bomb. And I mean, they all contributed, right, sometimes in more direct and indirect ways.
2: Yeah. um, So... I know, I mean, the first part of this discussion kind of makes it out to seem like, oh, well, there's this clear, easy case of the Nazis <laughs> followed orders and they were bad guys. Um, but uh, when you kind of try to take a, you know, an objective perspective on this, things get a lot messier.
3: And this connects to uh, our discussion about the Milgram experiments as well. And, and I think one thing that this kind of has to get us to think about is Either today we live in an an enlightened period, unlike no time in human history, or most of the people you know would have just followed orders in the Nazi regime if they had lived at that time. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, kind of the upshot of, you know, these two things together, is that you can take a step back and think, well, you know, if, you know, whatever it was, 80% of people were pushing that button, Uh, most German citizens were at the very least complicit, if not ratting out their neighbors who, you know, were, you know, keeping, hiding Jews away and, you know, like what happened with the Frank family. Um, And so this kind of all leads me to probably the toughest question of all, which is like, since we know that, you know, a a good portion of people we know, and probably, you know, if you're being honest with yourself, it could even be you would have been part of the group that just followed orders. um, What does that tell you about? forgiveness. And, you know, I, I'm not suggesting either way that we should be more forgiving or not. And there's sort of two questions is like morally should we forgive people, but also, you know, what would a society that forgives everyone who commits bad things that, you know, happen look like, and is that really something we want? So there's sort of a functional and a moral question here. Um, but I, as a, as a Christian, I think that Jesus recognized this as well. And uh, I, I've been talking for a little while now, but the one other thing I'll bring up is at one point in the Bible, Jesus says that if you have hatred and you're in, your, in for your brother in your heart, you've, you've committed murder mm-hmm. and people think, Oh, this is like hyperbole. This is very extreme. And it's like, yes, but I think Jesus also recognizes the truth, which is that most people who are put in a situation where they could kill someone, if they hated that person, I, this was just maybe indifference, but imagine you had hatred for a person. You, you would uh, almost certainly kill them in this situation or, or most people would. And so does this tell us that we should be forgiving of people? I don't know. What, what do you all think?
2: Can I press what you said a little bit further? Because yes. I think
3: you might have even understated your case
2: here. When you say <laughs> something like uh, we either live in the most enlightened times or uh, maybe 70% of the people would follow orders immorally, right? I think one of the things that Milgram uh, shows us is that it, it just is the case that around 75, 70% of the people will follow orders immorally. And um, so I think it's not the case that it might be that 70% of the you, whatever uh people will follow orders immorally. i think the the question about whether or not we live in a kind of enlightened time says is either we live in a really enlightened time or future generations are going to look back on us and say why were 70 percent of the people participating in some institution that we're doing right now that people are going to look back on in the same way that we look back on something like slavery right so um it's not just that 70% of us would participate in something immoral uh, were it the case that
0: right.
2: we were confronted with it. I mean, unless we're at the end of history, we probably are as a society doing things, doing things that future generations will look back on as severely immoral. Um, and so I think that does raise this question of uh, uh, forgiveness in, in the way that you, uh, that you raised it. And so, I mean, maybe a question is like, where ought forgiveness to come from and you know what form
0: should that take? Well and I think some people would say uh on in the uh left hand kingdom as as Luther there's to bring work Luther back into here, uh that forgiveness is really mostly reserved for the right hand kingdom with God, that you've got that forgiveness. You did an awful thing, um Jesus forgives you if you recognize uh, him as Lord and Savior, and you're going to get to go spend eternity in heaven. But today you're hung with the short rope because of the consequences for violating other people's rights in the land that you live in on earth. So I don't think the forgiveness, I don't know where that belongs exactly, but are we supposed to? I don't know where you were going, Peter, with forgiveness. So should we have laws that are more forgiving because of these innate qualities or not or should they possibly be tougher and it's like okay well grace comes at the end when you're dead but here today you're serving 20 years or you're you're you've got the death penalty yeah the
3: i guess the question is do we think jesus's commands to forgive our neighbor 70 times seven times Mm -hmm. uh, which is a way of just saying a lot of times using the numerology of the time uh, or an endless amount of times, you could say, does that command apply to our laws too?
0: Yeah, and that's I, I, the I, key
3: th- I, I think yeah. th- I think the answer uh, personally, I think the answer is no, um, because I think Jesus sort of uh, encourages Christians to, to as far as it's possible for them to disengage from the law, uh, for the most part. You know, that's what mm-hmm. uh, render unto Caesar what Caesar is a, about.
0: Um, but, Better uh, yet, can you can you forgive them personally, but still support them going to the chair? I think that's what. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, th- there's, it's not like you're advocating right. that they get forgiveness with the penalty, but you personally forgive them. And it's like, good luck though. I support the law of the land here. I mean, you're a chair. Well, that's, okay. That's injection yeah. for that's kind of on the table right now in Terre Haute, Indiana. Yeah. So yeah.
3: No, I, I think, I think I agree with that. It, it's, it's a weird thing to think that most of human history, people are committing these atrocious things Uh, that you deserve to be imprisoned for or even, you know, receive the death penalty for slavery and, you know, um, murdering other populations of people when you conquered and all these things. This seems to apply to most people throughout history. And so it seems like most of humanity deserves this punishment. I think that's probably true, but it's kind of a hard pill to swallow.
2: Yeah, and maybe, I mean, does it even make sense to talk about someone in the past deserving punishment that we can't uh, <laughs> deliver. deliver? Yeah, uh, we're going to like dig him up, dust him off, and
0: hang him. I mean,
3: <laughs> we, we could we could have the thought experiment, though, yeah. of what if, they, what if they walked around today in the streets? What if Thomas Jefferson walked around? Well, only we in say, so far
0: and- that it helps us change our current laws, maybe, right? I mean, using that knowledge of what should have happened to so-and-so in the past, um, maybe if we change our institutions today, so-and-so wouldn't have done such a bad thing, right? To kind of help reshape our ourselves going forward. Yeah, I think it could have
3: that functional ability. Yeah.
0: Um, I wanted to bring up um, today's information in terms of the 70% uh, 1940s versus 2020 um, has asymmetric information is kind of the fancy economic term where uh, not everybody has a similar information. Uh, So the Nazis, of course, in control Knew what they were doing to the Jews, but the people who were maybe complicit in different ways didn't have the same information set and would they have acted differently if they did. And so my point bringing that up is that today with uh, cell phone cameras and Twitter and all the ways we can uh, blow up things, uh, blow up our phones. I mean, not, not literal explosion, but blow up our phones with information of things happening around the globe. Um would that have changed uh, the ability to have what happened in Nazi Germany? Has communication innovation uh, helped in that regard to maybe lower potentially 70% following to maybe something less, X percent?
2: I mean, on the one hand, you think maybe because information is, uh, you know, will help people make decisions, and it seems like maybe we have more information today. But it also seems like a lot of the information that we have today comes in the form of, you know, <laughs> bullying into participating. Yeah, in uh, 70 <laughs> percent. Right. Right. Yeah, and um, you know, again, to to just plug the Nicholson Baker book on called "Human Smoke" again. Uh, one of the things that is really interesting is this idea that nobody knew what was really going on uh, or that Hitler, nobody knew that Hitler was doing these like really bad things just isn't true. And it's kind of this whitewashing that we put mm. on, you know, the, oh, that's why the U.S. didn't enter the war earlier enough. And the fact is, you know, the U.S. could have taken in a lot more refugees and we explicitly denied them. Um, most countries knew that at least something very, very bad, at least that the Jews were being uh, horribly um, uh, you know, <coughs> sent to labor camps and treated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, obviously a, a large number of them were dying. And so, uh, so I think there's a, a two-pronged answer to maybe we shouldn't expect much better today. The first is that well they actually did have quite a bit of information then, uh, and the second is the information that we have today doesn't seem like it would be that uh, dispositive into getting us to do the right thing. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe not.
3: Uh, yeah, I think of China with this, and the, uh, the protests with the NBA last year. And so China's committing these uh, atrocities against the U- Uyghur, Uyghur, I can never say it quite properly, Muslims. Uyghurs. Uyghurs. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Uyghurs muslims in the country where you know there's there's leaking out now that there's these sterilization camps going on and basically concentration camps in their country they might not use that word but that's what they have Mm -hmm. um don't they call them rehabilitation camps or something along those lines re-education camps and and also with what was going on in hong kong where you know the protesters were being put down violently and people were being disappeared and so for a long time there was social media outcry about this and you know even some celebrities but you know uh I th- actually think the government of China ended up using those outlets to, uh-huh. to censor these opinions, especially yeah. with their, their power with the NBA. And so you saw a lot of that with the NBA, there was the one. Cause in some uh, ways they
0: have more power to influence those communication channels. Yeah. That's or overwhelm them or
3: whatever. That's exactly right. And so uh, it, it's almost could be, you know, even worse if they had that technology back then it could be used to censor like it, you know, China did with that. The one coach who came out and said that this is, you know, Hong Kong is the, the freedom movement of our day. And, you know, he, he steps down, I believe, yeah. um, or was fired.
0: Yeah, that's a good point that they can, you can kick up enough dust to cloud the to cloud the truth that's true. Uh, with these counter arguments in this massive communication channels that we have. So we've yeah. certainly seen that in multiple ways. And let's not forget that, you know, uh,
2: you know, how many people died in the Holocaust? I think it's around 12 million, right? Um, Six million Jews. And then there's Poles uh, yeah. and uh, Gypsies and uh, mm-hmm. everybody else that, that Hitler killed, too. Um, between 20 and 60 million people died in three years during Mao's Great Leap Forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading a great book. Uh, there's a trilogy by Frank de Cotter, um, the tragedy of liberation, Mao's Great Famine, and then the Cultural Revolution. And it's just, hor- I mean, you had local party officials forcing fathers to bury sons alive. Um, the, and the amount of death and planned starvation that occurred mm-hmm. um, in uh, in the culture in the Great Leap Forward it was a disaster, right? Yeah. And this is a country that is still operating concentration camps. It's really easy to uh, you know cast aspersions at the Nazis.
0: Right. They aren't there
2: anymore. Right. Um, but we do have a regime that still exists still exists
3: yeah yeah Yeah. and uh, you know this could be a whole nother podcast Uh, (laughs) talking talking (laughs) about these uh kind of communist regimes that take over and but when you look at like what was going on with Mao, i mean it, it happens with the soviet union too is like not only were people starving but like when people would go out in the already harvested fields trying to pick up like the extra little pieces of grain they would be punished like the grain that would just sit there and rot anyways they were done picking it up they had to turn it in to, you know, their central authority or they'd be punished. So that, you know, literally forced starvation is just uh, unbelievable.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I, I can't leave this without, because I don't feel like I got my answer on back to the following orders and thou shall not kill um, for the Christian war person. Um, where do we sit on that? Justin, I kind of want to throw it back to you from a real, because I know you've grappled with all these issues over the years with your training and teaching. Um, so are they clear? I mean, I guess we normally take the stance that, oh, you're in the war. You're part of this. It was part of the system and we were fighting other evils that were happening. And so you are morally clear conscience. True or false? I think false. Uh,
2: I think that, uh, the point of moral dilemmas is that it's a dilemma and okay. that you have to decide, uh, you have to decide for yourself, You know, this goes back to free will, rights and responsibility, right? You have to make that choice and you often have to make that choice. Um, You know, you find this in existentialist literature a lot where they say you have to make a choice based on incomplete information where you might not know what you're doing is the right Right. thing, but you are responsible for that decision anyway. And that might be why something like forgiveness comes into play.
0: Mm. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's a gra- I think that's a great way to end things. I, that, uh, I think that's good. So, All right, on behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, we'd like to thank you all for listening and appreciate your support uh, uh, in one shape or another, whether that's a five-star rating online or hitting our donation button at the Gortney Institute page. So we'll see you next week. Be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.